This is Symposium. After I finished the book, I wanted to know exactly what the truth behind that was. Krishna opens his mouth and she looks at his mouth and she sees the whole universe. If you go back and watch Friends, they never talk about politics. And it's not a big surprise, but it's kind of like, really? Like it never came up? He had to reevaluate his whole student senate and they, he straight up told them we need to reevaluate ourselves and check ourselves. Which is fascinating and wonderful in so many different ways. The thing that I've really been interested in exploring is how voters see political experience, um, whether they see it in a positive way or a negative way. So I just turned that into a research design. This is Heather Weigel. She's a fourth-year political science student with a minor in history, and she's actually our opinions editor here at The Echo. I was actually in the office with Heather the moment it was announced that the first two coronavirus cases had appeared in Michigan. And I remember her saying how upset she would be if the 40th annual undergrad symposium was also canceled as a result. And that moment was kind of what convinced me of the need for this podcast series, Symposium. So Heather is in part the person to thank for this podcast, but I digress. My research is titled Political Experience Doesn't Matter and to Whom. It's public opinion research, so basically um, it's all about what the public thinks about something. Voters have a lot of issues to consider before heading to the polls, from abortion to gun control, healthcare to climate change, the list goes on. But what about the candidates themselves? To what extent do things like university experience and career background sway voters' perceptions? That's what Heather's research seeks to answer. So I wanted to measure the perceptions of voters on types of qualifiers for political office, and I made primary manipulations on that. A manipulation refers to the process of creating the variables within an experiment. In this case, Heather crafted three manipulations to show how voters would respond to the following three things. And that's the prestige of their university, um, the candidate's undergraduate career at a prestigious university, like Brown, for example, or a state school like EMU, and a difference between an establishment candidate and an anti-establishment one and then previous occupational experience to a career in politics. Let's talk about that first manipulation, prestige of university. Heather constructed biographies for two hypothetical Republican candidates. Both bios are pretty much identical. Both are named Ben Morris, both are Republican, both use the exact same wording to indicate the policies they advocate. The only difference is that one went to Eastern Michigan University and the other went to Brown. She did the same for two Democratic bios, Two candidates, both named Max Miller, both Democrats, both advocating the exact same thing in the exact same way, except one went to Eastern and one went to Brown. That's four hypothetical candidates in total. Survey participants who identified as pure independent, independent-leaning Republican or Republican, were presented with one of the Ben Morrises. Participants who identified as independent-leaning Democrat or Democratic were presented with one of the Max Millers. They were then asked to rate the given candidate based on things like qualified, trustworthy, able to bring change, concerned about people like me, intelligent, and likable. My findings on the prestige of university were that the statistically significant differences were only really there among Republicans. Mm -hmm. So their differences were statistically significant in likable and concerned about people like me, where they rated the EMU Republicans, but significantly higher than the Brown Republican. And then nearing statistical significance was able to bring change. 
So again, those are all very personality oriented um, and like trustworthiness oriented questions that differed. And the Republican category was where the only significant difference existed. And what we gathered from that was that there is a perception among especially conservatives that um, there is a lot of coastal elitism in politics. Um, they're less likely to, to trust and relate with someone from an Ivy League than they are with someone from a working class or state school. Did you have any thoughts on why that is? So, if you've heard any of the any of the rhetoric on the Republican side in politics lately, it's a lot of drain the swamp kind of stuff. Um, no one really knows what the swamp means. It's a very emotive term. So, there's another one that's like creatures of Washington, and that's been a long-standing pejorative term. What I'm seeing in this data. And what I can gather from it is that that type of rhetoric and that type of thinking is a lot more present among Republicans than it is among Democrats. That they are more skeptical of the coastal elites and of the swamp, and they perceive the swamp as a bunch of highly educated, liberal, untrustworthy candidates. The next manipulation takes a look at a candidate's attitude towards, quote-unquote, the establishment. Can you explain establishment a little bit, like, as a term? So funny enough, um, my project explores what the establishment really means um, because it's it's been such a buzzword, um, especially in 2016. There was a study that a researcher did. They explored the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the L.A. Times to find how many times the word establishment was used leading up to the Iowa caucuses. And in 2016, it was 128 times, whereas in 2012, it was like 40-some. So basically, it's still an open question on what the establishment really means. But I plugged into my research a couple things that an an anti-establishment candidate would probably claim to do, such as not accepting um, corporate PAC money or relying on grassroots support, that kind of thing where it's like we don't need the big business and the big political interests to build a political coalition. Just kind of what I know about anti-establishment politics is what I use, but again, it's still an open question on what really is the establishment anyway. For the establishment manipulation, kind of like in the prestige of university manipulation, there are four hypothetical candidates. Two quote-unquote establishment candidates, male and female, and two anti-establishment candidates, male and female. Participants received one of the bios and then were asked to rate the candidates on the same factors. Like I said earlier, the establishment is kind of a, a murky term, but in my establishment candidate, I basically and it worked for um, interest groups, lobbying firms, political office previously, that kind of thing. Whereas the anti-establishment worked for like a nonprofit and didn't accept any money from political action committees and relied on donations from individuals, grassroots campaign, like turning out young voters. So that language was kind of coded towards 
Hey, they, they're a politician for the people. They also had a gendered component to them. So there were four possible candidates that the respondent would receive um, just to see if a woman, for example, identifying as an anti-establishment candidate would get more support than a man doing the same or less support. And who did you find got more or less support? So interestingly enough, it didn't hinge on gender that much, except for, in one example, the establishment candidate, so the establishment male, was found a lot more likely to be tied to special interests than the establishment female. But that was the only gender difference that was significant. Really? How about establishment versus anti-establishment? What did you find there? Um, the anti-establishment candidate across the board was rated higher, whether that was for Republicans, Democrats, independents, especially the, the Democratic respondents love the anti-establishment candidate. That might have something to do with the way that anti-establishment was coded in the bio, because it was the grassroots and the, it's what you're typically finding now in candidate bios for insurgent candidates. They're like, oh yeah, we don't take any any PAC money. That might play a role in democratically aligned individuals rating them higher. Finally, we have the career background manipulation. So for that one, I constructed four different bios. Again, um, there's no gender component in this, um, but there's four different possible career paths that the candidate could have taken before they decided to run for office in the U.S. House of Representatives. There's a professor, which is introduced to the respondent as Dr. Adam Wilson. There's a lawyer, which is a very traditional career path for politicians. There's a pastor, which is actually based on a candidate for the U.S. House in Michigan 7th, who's held office for a couple terms and whose opponent I worked for. So that's Congressman Tim Wahlberg, he was a pastor before seeking office. Um, so that manipulation was actually a wild card candidate because you don't see a lot of pastors running for office. Right. So that was kind of a, oh, let's throw this in here, see what we get. And then there's a businessman, which you probably hear often, oh, I want a businessman as the president because he can run the country like a business. So we decided to throw that one in too. And then who did you so, end up finding gained the most support? So the academic got, like, astronomical support compared to the others. Like, the differences were significant on every single thing, except for the qualified question, which the academic and lawyer were about tied. Which that's actually a trend across, because personality-oriented traits or kind of trust-oriented traits so trustworthy, likable, uh, open-minded, concerned about people like me. Those were, were always the types of things that showed the most difference. Because voters were like, yeah, this candidate might be qualified and they might be professional, but I don't necessarily think they are concerned about people like me or that they're trustworthy, etc. So they might have thought so, they were qualified but not likable as a person? Is that what that means Yeah, there? like... They didn't, they didn't find them likable as a candidate, but they found them qualified. So, like, yes, they can do what the office demands of them, but I don't, they don't necessarily think 
oh, they'll be looking out for me in the process. Were you surprised by that, or is that something that you feel like you see commonly across just politics? Actually, I was surprised by that, because typically in public opinion research, there's not that kind of logical differentiation. It's usually more scattered, and it hinges on the belief that part of public opinion is recognizing that most voters and most people don't have a very consistent set of beliefs. But this kind of shows that it is quite consistent. They can differentiate between those kinds of traits. That's kind of, like, heartening to me. A little bit, yeah. Especially because I us- in my studies I usually come from the perspective that, oh, yeah, voters aren't very consistent or very uh, intelligent on these things. So it was, it was kind of, it, it was nice to see that. And it was also nice to see that the academic tested so highly, especially in those things like likability, trustworthiness, open-mindedness, because there's this perception in politics that, especially on, on the right wing, that, you know, our universities are all run by a bunch of liberal hacks, right? And even when I looked at how Republicans and independents rated the academic, it was still, like, across the board, rated more highly for the academic. So maybe that liberal academia trope is misleading. I know we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but did this change how you, like, personally view other voters? Actually, um, I'm more willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And... I'm less inclined to say that, well, the, this is going to sound blunt, but there is a perception in political science especially that voters are just stupid because um, they're inconsistent and they don't have a very, like, great grasp of political concepts to the degree that someone who studies politics or is in politics does. But this research kind of showed me that, no, um, they're not stupid, even though they did, like, they they went on Amazon Turk and they consented to take a political study. So they they more inclined to give their opinions on politics than the average voter. They did that. I, I don't know. Like, they have a pretty consistent set of political opinions and that's something i didn't expect my biggest takeaway from heather's study is that voters aren't easily fooled they understand that being likable doesn't make you qualified and not everyone who's qualified is necessarily likable in other studies i've read other a lot of literature that i've focused on in my studies for science have kind of said the opposite while my one research study that kind of goes against these perceptions that I, that I gained from other research, while it may not change the mind about it for good, it makes me less inclined to say that voters are simply stupid. Obviously, like she said, more research needs to be done, but I would hope that future research returns the same results and tells us the same thing, that voters, no matter where they stand on the spectrum, put thought into their choices and are consistent. 
Thanks again to Heather Weigel. To read her abstract or learn more about the undergrad symposium, visit emish.edu forward slash symposium. You can find more stories like this at easternecho.com, and you can reach our podcast section via email at podcast at easternecho.com. This episode of Symposium was written and produced by myself, Ronia Isabel-Kabansug. Special thanks to Amy Berenger for all her help with the series, and thank you for listening. We'll be back with more next Tuesday. Bye.